This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu on Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode, we are joined by Rukmini S., data journalist and author of Whole Numbers and Half-Truths, What Data Can and Cannot Tell Us About Modern India, a fascinating book that draws upon a range of numbers to answer some of the burning political, social and economic questions that India is dealing with. Everything from crime in India to what Indian people think, feel and believe, how India votes and even the healthcare sector in India and how we dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic. In the course of this book, Rukmini draws on on-the-ground reporting as well as data and questions some of the most deeply held conventional wisdoms about Indian politics, economy, health and society. Rukmini, thank you so much for joining the Hindu On Books podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Anand. To begin with, Rukmini, can you just tell us a little bit about how uh, this book came about. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know that for many years you've been working as a data journalist and also a little bit about how you got into data journalism in the first place. Sure. So the book actually um, is a sort of combination of two strands of reporting that I've been doing over time and these shouldn't necessarily be separate but but they were and maybe you know maybe they won't be in the future which is I was first a sort of what you call a regular field reporter whose job, especially as a as an intern or a you know beginning career journalist, was to be sent all over the city or all over the country. And the, those sorts of experiences, I think, even though I may not have known it at the time, what they were doing was introducing me to the way democracy actually functions, the sort of nuts and bolts and levers of how India really operates. Um, and what this meant is that when I transitioned to focusing more on data, which is something that came about as a result of me doing a sort of in-between master's degree, at which point I was exposed to research and statistics around India for the first time. I had not really paid any attention or you know learned about this before. And I wanted to start integrating this into the reporting I was doing. So what this ended up doing was that those years of experience on the field helped me understand the stories behind what I was seeing in research reports or in spreadsheets. And um, the fact that I was seeing these connections, some of them were to uh, broaden or deepen my understanding of what the numbers said. Some, in fact, uh, some of my experiences contradicted what the numbers said or sort of showed the gaps or holes or what was missing in it. So these sorts of intersections between quote-unquote real world and what numbers were showing me drove me to write a book about these sorts of connections and what they say about modern India. What I really liked about it, Rukmini, uh, about whole numbers and half-truths is it's not just chapter after chapter of of you going into surveys and data, which you do, but in in those chapters, you do bring about actual stories of people uh, and individual stories uh, that help put context to the numbers. So I think you make a sort of compelling case it can't just be numbers don't tell you everything, but you kind of need a mix of having uh, for a journalist, you need a mix of having an on the ground sense of what's happening, what's behind those numbers. You kind of need both. Is that the broader point that you were trying to make? 
Yeah, and I think you put it really well by putting it that way because sometimes what journalists, especially data journalists end up doing is something a bit more artificial and instrumental, which is to sort of very consciously try and humanize the numbers. This is, you know, feedback that editors always give you. And then when they, when you do that, you always get a sort of false note. You see that this one person is being used or one uh, situation is being used as an archetype for what the numbers are saying. And over time, it becomes like a trope and quite tiresome to read. But if what you think you are doing is giving context or explaining how things play out in the real world or even complicating or contradicting what the numbers say, then I think it adds some richness um, to your work without feeling like a sort of manipulative ploy, you know, which it can sometimes feel like, which is that you're telling readers that, hey, I know numbers alone are not going to draw you in. Here is my sort of manipulative way to get you in. So I think it's important to ensure, and I hope I've, you know, tried to do that, that I'm not doing it for these instrumental purposes, but because reality is messy and does somehow, does sometimes show that the numbers are getting things wrong or are missing nuance or are sort of in fact in you know more dangerous um, instances giving you the wrong idea of what's actually happening right and uh, so so the book is divided into 10 chapters where you look at the ports and cops crime data and what it tells us about india uh, you have a chapter on values which i found really fascinating i'm sure the chapter that a lot of readers will find most interesting is how india votes and things that you often read in the newspapers and listen to in the TV studios that kind of don't really explain the full picture. And it's not just about politics. There's a chapter on how people in India live, uh, how they eat, how I mean, their, their personal lives. And it's a really fantastic. I, there's so much I learned from it. And what I really liked about the book was it made me revisit so many conventional wisdoms that 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 i that i read in the media and and i think you've, you've done a great service by by look making us question those things and i'm, I'm not going to go over all of it that's something that i encourage people to to discover themselves in the book but i but i did want to begin with with your chapter on health uh, because we are speaking on december 30th when it's kind of this terrible deja vu feeling to to what we experienced uh, in late 2020 um, and in the book, now that we're dealing with a new variant, in the book you mention how maybe health more than anything else, if you get data wrong, the consequences can be devastating, it's life or death, more than in any other sphere. So can you tell us a little bit about how has data and the way the government used data affected the way we responded to the pandemic? Right, yes, and I think it's an important moment to be talking about it because there's not just a deja vu in terms of, you know, another wave of the virus, but there's also a deja vu in terms of the conversations around Indian data that we're having because so much has not progressed and we're having to have these conversations again, which is incredibly frustrating. So some of these, and I say this about multiple types of data in the book, which is that some of these issues are institutional and they've been sort of legacy issues that have, um, uh, you know, have their roots in earlier decades. Uh, And, you know, it points sometimes to, because India came out of, came into uh, independence with a great deal of idealism around nation building in which data was, uh, was going to be, was going to play a very important role. And the institutions that India built then were sort of the envy of the, not just the developing world, but the developed world as well. 
but there has been you know some amount of rot in those systems and a lot of lethargy over the last couple of decades as well so when it comes to health data i'd say the fact that india still does such a poor job of uh, surveilling disease and infectious disease in particular is a legacy issue this didn't you know crop up in the last couple of years and for for the uh, continuing explanation to be that india is only able to get data from government um, systems is just something that should not fly any longer given that we know that more people access health in the private sector than in the government sector now so it's a huge failing that should have been remedied some time ago and when you have such a small subset of people whose sort of health seeking behavior you are able to capture you're getting all sorts of things wrong you're getting uh, the extent to which the poor fall ill wrong you're getting the extent to which women fall ill wrong um, because you know they tend to be underrepresented in official data uh, the expenditure uh, particularly the sort of debilitating effect of out of pocket expenditure we're just not you know getting a good enough sense of that uh, so so those are some of the legacy issues we went into the pandemic with and then of course there are all new issues that came up in the last uh, two three years and again i do want to emphasize that despite being a developing country india has punched far below its weight when it comes to covid data so this isn't a, a you know lack of capacity issue alone this is a country which could uh, put up the sort of the best um, it systems or at least a website around whatever it chose to do uh, overnight but it's still not got an official repository of all covid data and this is still a volunteer driven effort that's being done by people outside of government so you know when i looked at we looking at latin american countries like in the beginning of the pandemic and it's um, it's appalling that indian data hasn't got there yet and you know other issues are a sort of combination of legacy and uh, issues that are to do with the current moment which is for example when it comes to registering deaths india has had an immature registration system and has missed deaths but then what you've added to it right now is a sort of refusal by the current administration to acknowledge accurate numbers because it um, casts a shadow on what they would like to paint as a very successful handling of the pandemic so these aren't sort of naive um, issues either these are they have a sharp edge and that sharp edge is located in in the politics of the moment and that was actually my next question where you you do mention that mortality data throughout the pandemic in india uh, doesn't really give you a clear picture and maybe it it led to a false sense of confidence and towards the end of 2020 there was a feeling that india was unique people have natural immunity all sorts of things were being said but as you said what's complicated this kind of you do mention there are real problems so many deaths are not registered uh but then there is also the added issue of what you just hinted at where the the government has been saying even in in global fora that india is a leader india handled covid well so it's a very very strong sort of political incentive to not have the full picture come out so how much of that do you think do you think it's how much of it has been a genuine issue of not having the infrastructure to get a clear picture of what's happening but how much of it is sort of a willful sense of ensuring things stay that way yes so i do think that it's a combination of the two but i think by sort of beginning um, with this note of triumphalism from so early the government has sort of painted itself into a corner which is that um, you know mortality estimates by journalists and others um, including me which have for which we have used 
official Indian data on mortality from all causes during the pandemic and during past years to sort of estimate excess mortality, which is now a sort of globally accepted exercise. Those numbers do show a lot of missed deaths, but they would, in population-adjusted terms, place India sort of where the rest of the world is because, you know, mortality has been uh, at a reasonably similar level in many countries. So it doesn't necessarily show that India had, you know, did the worst, especially proportionate to its population. But once you've decided right from as Modi in uh, the World Economic Forum in 2021 at the beginning of this year announced that, you know, displayed this triumphalism, for example, once you've done that, you've sort of painted yourself into a corner where even accepting that the virus hit you as badly as it hit the rest of the world is an admission of defeat that you are no longer willing to make. So having reached that point, I think um, the government is now, you know, absolutely digging its heels in and refusing to accept these numbers. And um, what what did happen in the pandemic is one there was uh, there were these death registration systems that were not uh, good enough though they have improved significantly over the past. Then there was the issue of India adopting a very stringent definition of what constituted a COVID death, which in a country in which so so many deaths in all times go undiagnosed, untreated, you know, unknown really, um, it was bound to miss a lot of deaths. And then to it you add this sort of element of political triumphalism, which makes any sort of coming back to common ground almost impossible now. Yeah, and the health uh, chapter has more than COVID. Uh, I learned a lot about, I mean, it questions what you think about private, what is actually private healthcare in India, which is not just what you think of as big hospitals and big cities, but a much more complicated uh, picture of what how exactly healthcare works in India. Uh, another theme that your book sort of uh, emphasizes quite a bit in different chapters is is the issue of caste, and it comes up in different ways. And you and you mentioned that uh, there's sort of uh, this perception among urban elite uh, and liberals that caste no longer is an issue in India. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you were kind of trying to respond to uh, when you were making the argument about caste and what surveys and, and numbers told you about that. Right. So, yeah, I think caste in particular was one of those things that I felt that every time something came up in the news cycle, I was ending up writing a news article around it, which which had, which had was basically saying, but this is what the data, when you look at it by caste says. So I felt, I almost felt like I needed to sort of set this down in stone somewhere so that we're not having these same conversations again and again, at least in, in our small bubbles and we can sort of move further uh, move ahead after you know establishing some common uh, some basic understanding which is that uh, the centrality of caste to Indian life which is something that people who bear the sharp uh, edge of it uh, are you know bear witness to it every day but those who don't can sort of see it in this uh, casteless colorless um, utopia uh, the centrality of caste is something we need to be talking about much more often And this means um, looking at data, for example, on the continuing practice of untouchability, you know, beginning from there and then talking about things like uh, discrimination. You know, there is still a a significant share of people who admit even in surveys to practicing untouchability. Then I think the thing that we need to talk about much more is just how rare and how unacceptable inter-caste marriage continues to be in India, that a majority of people, including young people, not just do not have intercaste marriages, which we know are just four or five percent of all marriages, 
they also feel no one else should have it. They feel that it is something that it should oppose, that they should oppose. And just to put this in context, 85 years ago, Ambedkar said that, you know, the greatest solvent for caste would be intercaste marriage. And the fact that we are still in a place where a majority of people feel that it's okay to even tell surveyors that they are opposed to intercaste marriage says something about one big failure of India's democratic project for this to still be an acceptable uh, response to surveyors, let alone what people think. Then there's also the data that, uh, you know, intersects with class, which I don't think gets talked about often enough and needs to get talked about more, especially in the context of these sort of pretty pointless conversations around uh, affirmative action and whether, you know, we need it or that sort of thing. When, when the data shows quite conclusively that across job categories, uh, the forward cast make uh, significantly more money than people from all other castes. Forward castes are highly uh, overrepresented in, uh, you know, all sorts of white collar occupations. And even at the same uh, type of job, a forward caste person is likely to get paid much more than a person from any of the other, any backward caste or a minority group. So, you know, when we have these conversations around uh, the poor within forward caste, which we did, and that led to affirmative action for the poor among forward caste, it was a conversation devoid of data because the data shows that, that uh, you know, this sort of sense of victimhood that is being sharpened in some ends is not in fact based in uh, data at all. And then we have pretty uh, strong sort of survey and experimental information around the practice of discrimination, whether it is in the job market or in the housing uh, market or in the marriage market, where we know that there is a clear price to be paid for having uh, either a Muslim or a backward caste uh, last name. And this is, of course, the lived reality of the majority of the country, but it's just something that the data shows that forward caste people should be thinking more about. Uh, and the caste issue is something that you also uh, mentioned in your chapter on uh, how India votes. Uh, and that's a chapter that I'm sure many listeners will find particularly interesting, uh, given that uh, you would think, the, given the amount of coverage we have on elections, that you would think by now we would have a, a handle of, of, of making sense of things. But yet uh, you make the argument uh, quite persuasively that oftentimes our readings of, of how people vote in elections aren't often borne out in, borne out in the numbers. Something that always strikes me when I watch television election coverage is up until the result, people have no idea what exactly is going to happen. But yet, miraculously, when the results come out, people have great explanations of why of why people voted the way they did. It's not just that if the outcome goes the opposite way, that same explanation can be repurposed for the exact opposite outcome. We have actually seen that happen on television. So these are very um, flexible uh, theories as well. Can you tell us a little bit, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot in the chapter on elections, but just to give us a flavor of it, what were some of the things that really struck you that don't perhaps get as much attention as they should? So I think one of the things that's happened in the last five or ten years is the pushing of a narrative that the Indian voter values, um, you know, economic growth and jobs and the sort of amorphous concept of development so much that what is seen as past, you know, loyalties around religion or caste have ceased to matter. This is a um, this is a narrative beloved of of the Indian media and also peddled by some uh, political parties, uh, uh, you know, particularly the BJP at the time of national elections in particular. And um, I think what's happened is a sort of 
something of a group think uh, situation where even people uh, creating conducting and then analyzing surveys have sort of limited their imagination around questions and then take this very literal interpretation of survey uh, responses so surveys and in fact surveys dating back from the 50s and 60s regularly show that the indian voter says that they are voting for like the top one two three issues would usually be jobs and economic growth um better development that sort of thing and these answers have been taken to very literally mean that this is what matters most to voters but then the same voter also says that 45% of voters say for example that they would want an mp who belongs to their own caste we also do see that a muslim mp now in india can only get elected from a muslim majority constituency so this sort of um, you know literal interpretation of surveys i think has done a great damage to our understanding of politics and the complex decision uh, matrices that go on behind uh, voters um, making their choices are things that have sort of got flattened and actually this is something that uh, conversations with voters bring out very clearly because it's actually quite inspiring to talk to voters about what animates their vote choices and these are often very uh, lofty ideas they are not as literal or flattened or limited as surveys would have us believe so i think there's a lot of um triangulation of data that's not happening right now mm-hmm. which which we need much more of because there's so much studying of the indian voter that's happening but um it's really very limited right now uh, and the final uh, issue that i wanted to uh, get your thoughts on rukmini which which if i had one takeaway from the book for me personally for me it was the insights you have uh that you know we like to think of india being a open liberal country but the numbers put a pretty persuasive portrait of something the opposite and the thing that really struck me was uh it isn't a generational thing and that if younger people in surveys and express themselves in other ways are far less progressive uh, than what people would imagine so how is it that there's such a gap between say our own is it delusion our own perceptions of india being a certain way yet having such a strong body of evidence to suggest that the actual picture is something very different yeah you know that chapter was actually the last one i wrote and almost as an afterthought because i actually felt that this point had been made so frequently but it's one of those things right. you marshal all the data and put it together you realize that it's making a point that really takes people aback i have found that you know in the in reader responses um and i think this point about young people in particular is something that it's not just taken people aback it's also sort of you know fitting into place now when you when you just look at the last two weeks even in india there's such a sort of wave of religious intolerance that that we're seeing day after day uh, coming out and and the growing realization that this could not happen we always assume that what this needs is political backing and of course it does but it also does mean mass popular support and i think that part of the equation is something we perhaps you know not come to terms with so there's a couple of things one is i do think that there's a lot of talking within bubbles that happens in india and uh, perhaps liberals have uh, painted these thoughts as fringe thoughts without accepting that perhaps they are the fringe and these are very much mainstream thoughts and and i think there's been a trope around india that everyone the liberals have found comforting which is that you know indians may not rent their uh, hindus may not rent their house to a muslim or they might not allow their daughter to marry a muslim but they're basically decent people and you know with 
broadly tolerant views and you know you have all these diwali ads around um, interreligious friendships and unfortunately i just don't think that that's what the the center or the core of the country is like and we we're seeing this we're seeing this in electoral outcomes we're seeing this in surveys and we're seeing it on the street but um, this is a sort of reality we have to come to terms with that or if all evidence points in one direction there's no point hugging this comforting lie to ourselves anymore but and yours isn't uh, i mean you do give us a realistic portrait but you aren't fatalistic about it and you make the argument that uh these aren't inevitabilities uh, but of course the the point that you make is if you want to make a policy interventions the first step is to recognize the problem first so uh, on a final note rukmini can you tell us a little bit about how you think at the moment uh interventions are made and and the way you think it should it should go from here yes i don't feel fatalistic about it at all because i do think that there are there are ways out of it but the thing is to first come together to uh, accept that this is a national project if you do agree that this is a common project to at the very least have people more tolerant and accepting of each other's beliefs then then there are pathways to it but um, i don't see that common ground even uh, yet enough people sort of coming out and saying that this is something that that they want to pursue and i think we've left too much of it to the domain of electoral politics alone while if if these are the views young people hold then what are we what's happening in schools what hap- what's happening in colleges what are happening in non political social arenas as well you know as soon as we uh, sort of come together to say that we, this is a project that we would like to pursue to uh, have people uh, have more tolerant beliefs then then we have to think of of the the sort of civic work that that it will take to achieve this and not just you know put it down to polarized politics alone thank you so much rukmini for your time i think we've just got to the surface of of uh, the things that you cover in your book i encourage people to read it for themselves rukmini the author of whole numbers and half truths what data can and cannot tell us about modern india thank you so much for joining the podcast today thank you so much for having me on Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 